Welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live about equine digestive health. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital editor of the Horse.com. Tonight's Ask the Vet Live is brought to you by Muriel, the maker of GastroGuard and UlcerGuard. We're joined by our experts, Dr. Anthony Blixlager of North Carolina State University and Dr. Hoyt Sheremy of Muriel. Dr. Blixlager, uh, you're an equine surgeon, you're a professor and a researcher. Can you tell us a little bit about your specialty interest in uh, equine digestive health? Sure. So I came through the training program at NC State as a surgical resident, learning how to do all kinds of different surgeries, including colic, and uh, that's what really caught my interest, mostly because of the um, emergency nature of it. So then I went on and uh, uh, got a, a PhD in gastroenterology so that I could understand it better and direct my research more specifically. And so I still uh, work in the clinic, still um, assess horses with colic and try to understand that better uh, with the studies in the lab. And Dr. Sheremy, welcome. Thanks for joining us tonight. Um, you spend a lot of time out in the field looking at horses in your work with Muriel. Actually, I think you just got back from California, just got off a, a plane. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, experience dealing with equine digestive issues? Yes, Michelle. So most of my experience uh, looking at digestive disorders in horses with Muriel for the past six years has been focused on equine gastric ulcer syndrome. And as you mentioned, uh, just got back from doing some gastroscopies in California. And over the past six years, I've been able to scope around 2,000 horses <clears throat> looking at their stomachs, uh, trying to determine whether you know they had gastric ulcers. But prior to that, um, I'd say most of my experience with this digestive disorders in horses this comes from my private practice experience and my surgical residency. Like Dr. Blixlager, I'm a board-certified surgeon. And my interest in surgery came from actual colic and uh, when I lost a two-year-old uh, colt when I was a high school student. And uh, so I, I went on to vet school with the interest of um, uh, pursuing surgical residency and being able to manage colic better than you know, what had been available to, uh, to us at the time. Yeah, those life events with our horses really can kind of change the course of, of what we're doing. Sure does. Um, so, as always for this topic, and this is such an important topic, digestive health in our horses, and Dr. Sheremy, you shared about your horse um, dying of colic, and this is something that all of us horse owners seem to face at some point. Um, so, really important topic. We've received, as always, hundreds of questions, but even more than our hundreds of questions. We have tons and tons of questions to get through tonight. I want to give everyone listening an idea of our schedule. Uh, we're going to start out covering some feeding and digestive uh, supplement type questions. We're going to move into uh, questions regarding ulcers, colic, uh, and then uh, some diarrhea questions. But the people have about their horses. Uh, we have an hour tonight and um, we're going to go questions back and forth that were pre-submitted. If you are listening live, you're welcome to enter questions into your console, into your browser and send them to us. Uh, we are looking at those as they come in and we'll try to squeeze those in while we're having this conversation. So doctors, are we ready to get started? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Blixlogger. Can you explain to us what we mean by the equine 
digestive system. What part of the horse are we looking at from top to bottom? So from from top to bottom, we're looking at the uh, horse uh, chewing uh, feed with their teeth, uh, swallowing it down into a structure called their esophagus, which is just beyond the throat, right in that region. And, uh, and people familiar with cases of uh, choke would know exactly where the esophagus is, where you get a little blockage right there that you can actually see. And then it goes down into a stomach, which in the horse, given its size, is actually relatively small to the extent that it doesn't touch their body wall on the bottom, and that's part of the reason they can't vomit. And then um, it gets passed fairly rapidly into the what we call the small intestine, just because of its diameter, its size, it's not that big around, but there's about 70 foot of it. So then you go down 70 feet, and it's not particularly organized within the, um, what we would call the abdomen, within the body of the horse. Um, it's fairly loosely arranged, and then it hits what is probably the most important structure for digestion, and that's their colon. That's about 20 foot long, but it's... Uh, it's sort of doubled up in a, in a sort of a double horseshoe pattern, so it folds over a couple of different times, which can hang things up, and, and that's why we sometimes see impactions. Uh, but that's where they ferment feed, literally, in order to get nutrition from it. And then there's the last part of the digestive tract, the small colon, um, and then that's where manure is uh, ultimately produced and then passed out of the horse. So there's lots of room for error in that system, <laughs> and which yeah, is why there, I mean, there, there sure is. And, and a lot of people want to know, well, why on earth would a horse be built that way? And um, the, the ultimate reason, or one reason, would be a horse had to figure out um, how to survive on forage or grass developed on the North American plains and be able to run fast. So cattle do that, and they have this big stomach, but it's in the front, so they can't run that fast. So horses put all of that in the back, that fermentation capacity, so the, the colon is in the back. They can run fast, but in order to get enough of it in there, you have to fold it over multiple times. So they're highly developed running machines. They can live on grass, but that would be their kind of Achilles heel. Okay. So our first listener question is for Dr. Sheremy, and it's about forage, which you just mentioned, Dr. Blixover. And Heidi in Hampton, Minnesota, says that there are a lot of mixed messages about whether or not we should be feeding our horses alfalfa hay. Uh, she says that it's been harder to find good grass hay in her area, and sometimes she is forced to feed 60 to 80% alfalfa. What are the advantages or potential problems with feeding alfalfa? And I know this is a big question for people in California as well, uh, Dr. Sheremy. That's right. So alfalfa hay for a long time has been both applauded and derided as a feed for horses. And uh, I find that across my travels, um, uh, across different regions in the U.S., and, and a lot of it depends on kind of the local hay supply and what those horse owners have available for, for feeding their horses. And in areas where there is the majority of the hay that's produced is alfalfa hay, generally for cattle, 
uh, horses get or kind of get the byproduct of that having it available, then we see a lot of alfalfa consumption in areas where there's not a lot of alfalfa hay grown, so it's more expensive. You have to truck it in, like in the southeast United States. We see a lot of grass hay uh, being fed. And I think it, it's a lot of tradition as to people's thoughts on feeding alfalfa in horses. And alfalfa can be a very good forage for horses. There are some things that we need to um, be concerned about, but it's an excellent source of energy, protein, calcium, and some other uh, nutrients. So for horses that are growing or lactating mares, or horses that are intensive work and training, it can be a good feed management or part of a, a good feeding program to use alfalfa hay to provide those nutrients. In horses that don't need as much energy or don't need that level of, um, uh, of nutrients, then it may be overfeeding. And that's where we get into some of the potential problems in that the high energy uh, can lead to excessive weight. And we see that as, as one potential concern with alfalfa hay. So sometimes we feed less roughage if we only have access to alfalfa hay. And then we're not allowing though the horse to need eat enough of it, so we get what we would consider decreased gut feel. And we think some of the problems with that is horses might uh, be hungry, and so they're constantly searching for other things to eat, and that potentially could be a problem. We also know in growing foals that the excess energy, protein, and calcium have been implicated as factors, not direct causes, but factors that may uh, play a part in developmental orthopedic disease. So again, another kind of ding on alfalfa. Um, and then, at least in California, where we see probably the, the highest number of enteroliths as a cause of colic, and enteroliths are a stone that develops inside the intestines, and, and in and of themselves, they, they don't hurt the horse, what happens, though, is they can become uh, lodged in a small uh, portion of the, in the large intestines where it goes from a large size to a small t size and create an impaction. And because of the high calcium level uh, and phosphorus level, and then particularly magnesium, it's thought that alfalfa hay can play a role in, in the development of intralis. So there's things to consider when feeding alfalfa hay. But we know there are many horses that eat alfalfa hay as their only forage throughout their entire life and can live a long, healthy life. I think we just have to understand what those issues potentially are and try to manage them. And then the one last thing I would say is that when we do switch or, or begin feeding alfalfa hay in a horse that hasn't really had alfalfa hay in the past, it's one of the things that we should really do gradually over time because we can create some changes in that gut flora uh, that uh, need to take a little more time. And, and if we do that, if we rush it, uh, we can end up causing some problems in the horse. We might see uh, some diarrhea related to that. We might see some gas colic and, and those kinds of things. So we can use alfalfa hay. We just need to be cognizant, cognizant of some of those issues. Okay, thank you. Um, and we have a question for Dr. Blixlogger, and it's from Ron in Virginia. And Ron is asking about post-surgery. Are there any supplements or herbs that be, can be given to a horse that can help uh, alleviate inflammation in the intestines? Do you have any suggestions, Dr. Blixlogger? Um, it's a, yes, and it's an interesting question because the use of supplements and herbs has become 
um, so prevalent and so so heavily marketed that that it really becomes confusing as to what to do. I think in terms of a horse after um, surgery in particular, we end up actually worrying a little bit more about what we can do to get them started nutritionally. So we're, we're rather than supplements in the beginning at least, we're looking at what can we start them on that's really going to have high energy, high protein content, and actually would uh, one of the uh, great solutions to that is actually very small amounts of alfalfa hay. Um, we'll also use high fat, uh, complete rations, small amounts of, of that to get them started. And then, but then not to judge the question specifically in terms of a supplement, I think the ones that, that, that would make the most sense um, would be this general category of pre and probiotics. And there's a, I, th I think there's a question coming up as to what those are, but the bottom line is that um, we're looking for something that contains beneficial bacteria within it and realizing that when we've done surgery, in many cases we've either flushed the contents out of the intestine or at the very least uh, things have moved around uh, or the horse has had a gastrointestinal upset with the colic so that the normal bacteria living in there um, have uh, changed and some of the... Uh, bugs that we don't want to see start to come out. So then the point of the supplement is to try to get that bacterial flora back to normal. Um, and I, I think uh, we certainly use those in the hospital. I have to admit that we don't necessarily know um, how much good they're doing, but the, one of the greatest things about them is they don't cause any harm. And, and the theory is really good. And I can just stretch it to, the, to where this is all heading. Once we really get this right with these um, probiotics and we're really able to restore the normal bacterial flora in a horse's gut, that is actually what's going to prevent our ongoing inflammation because the inflammation is in large part coming from the kind of bad bacteria that we don't want to see that are breaking up being absorbed and, and, and causing uh, a response right in the gut wall. As far as the uh, as herbs, um, I honestly can't think of anything very specific there. I, I don't want to dismiss uh, herbal remedies entirely. It's just that I think it's fair to say we just don't really know enough about them. Um, so if we're going to pick on anything in there, it's going to be the probiotic category and work hardest with that. <laughs> and Dr. Blixauger, you you're correct in that we do have a question um, coming up, and I'll go ahead and, and give it to you now about pro and prebiotics. And we had really lots and lots of questions about probiotics, prebiotics, what they are, and, and the potential benefits of those. Uh, this question came in from Lynn's in California, and Lynn wants to know what the difference is between pro and prebiotics, and whether or not the horse needs both, or if it's harmful to give both to, to a horse. Uh, do you have suggestions on that? Yeah, so uh, prebiotic, literally, so biotic is the actual bug that we're feeding the horse. So a prebiotic is something you would give to feed the uh, bacteria, and there are other microorganisms in there too. So 
the prebiotic feeds the bugs, the, the uh, probiotic is the bugs. And um, simplistically, we can kind of think of, uh, as far as the, um, the probiotics, the sort of um, bacteria you might get in things like yogurt. In fact, that has been uh, a remedy or a therapy over the years before um, we've kind of distilled down those, those organisms and put them into a supplement that, uh, in, in a smaller form that you can more readily see. That's the difference between the two, and there's certainly no harm in uh, giving both. Uh, generally, you would find that a pre and or a probiotic um, they don't give you that much nutritional value by themselves. Um, and it's it would be relatively hard to overdo it with those. Um, so you can feed those together um, with the hope that then when they reach their site of action, which really mostly is going to be the colon. That's, you've got to keep thinking about that fermentation vat that's towards the back of the horse that's doing all the work. Okay. And, Dr. Sheremy, I'm going to go back to, to your question, and that came in from Jackie, who is in Wellington, Florida. And you mentioned earlier obese horses um, when you were answering the alfalfa question. And Jackie has a miniature horse who has Cushing's, which um, are often overweight type horses, and she says his diet is safe starch forage, and it's working well, um, but he can't be fed sugar. She wants to know what kind of safe treat she can give this little guy. Right. So if we just back up a little bit, you know, with Cushing syndrome, because Cushionoid horses have lots of alterations in various uh, functions, um, particularly carbohydrate metabolism, uh, and then also um, uh, that change in carbohydrate metabolism can result in insulin resistance, these horses do have some metabolic challenges. And we know that feeding them simple sugars uh, can exacerbate some, some symptoms, uh, can, can cause them to maybe start a bout of laminitis, uh, things like that. So we have to be careful about what we do feed these horses, particularly in the treats, because that's, that's actually grown quite a bit and is, is a large business these days are uh, treats for horses. And now, my most horses get a lot of treats too. So. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, we fed apples and peppermints, mm -hmm. and, and now there's you know horse-based specific treats, and a lot of them are are uh, grain-type um, uh, cookies and biscuits with sugar flavorings, molasses, and things like that. And, and those high sugar, simple carbohydrates can potentially be problematic. So the safe treats we have available to us for cushionoid horses is quite limited. And, and like I said, most of the commercial treats available are high in sugar. Now, there are some commercial treats that are designed for use in, uh, in cushionoid horses. And uh, so, so I, if I was uh, interested in finding that, there, there are some available through a search on the, on the web. Uh, as far as some of the natural um, treats that we used to use in the past or, or would like to use, apples and carrots and those kinds of things, actually are not appropriate for cushionoid horses. Um, what I've tried with some of my owners is uh, celery. I had them try celery. Some horses will eat celery, others won't. Um, and then the other options we have are things like alfalfa cubes or Timothy hay cubes. Both are fairly safe for cushionoid horses. Other things that you might have at certain times of the year might include watermelon rinds. Uh, so, so those in small amounts have a, have a somewhat sweet taste to horses, 
um, but not the simple sugars as long as it's just the rind. Uh, and then um, what, what I've also used with some clients are the diabetic candies that have things like Splenda and NutraSweet in them. As long as we're not feeding them in, in excess amounts, then those would be safe as well. I think though the, the biggest treat we might be able to give some of these horses is just a good scratch behind the ear um, and, and uh, a little more positive reinforcement versus something you know that we always want is, is an eat for a treat. So save, save the box of sugar cubes for a different horse. Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, we have a question that's come in live from Carl in Georgia who's listening right now. And Dr. Blixager, I'm going to hand this over to you. Carl wants to know if there are any health concerns feeding a horse once a day versus twice a day. Uh, do you have any recommendations for Carl? Yeah. Um, you want, uh, to, to kind of understand uh, feeding in a horse, the best way to think about it is that they're naturally um, developed to eat relatively continuously for about 12 to 18 hours of the day. And so then what that translates to is that they, they aren't meal-feeding animals. I mean, they certainly like to eat meals, and, um, and we all know that when we go to feed grain in the morning. But, um, but uh, the, the, the more meals you can give them, the more that becomes like the natural scenario where they're essentially eating continuously. So, um, it would depend what you were uh, feeding, but if we're talking about a concentrate feeding, um, some, some form, some pelleted feed or some form of grain, it, I would have to say it's still better to split that up. Um, most people are doing that twice a day, but, but now we're finding that Owners are starting to, to get with feeding them uh, three or four times a day in, in much smaller rations. Because here's really the thing to think about. When you feed a concentrate, especially if it's got um, something readily digestible in it, some sort of uh, starch kind of thing um, that's going to create some sugars, what happens in a horse that doesn't really happen so much in us is that it gets into the stomach and they clear it pretty rapidly and it goes down that 70 foot of small intestine, which is actually where they can absorb sugars and digest carbohydrate. It goes down that pretty rapidly. You can actually get down 70 foot of bowel within three hours or so, and it hits the colon. And the colon's designed to digest forage, so hay, grass, um, uh, beet pulp, that sort of thing. And so when you then present that colon with something that's kind of easy to digest, you get a little bit of a shift in the bacterial population in there, and that's where you can start to see some of the digestive upset in terms of gas formation, perhaps even some mild colic in some cases. Okay. Um, and we're getting a question in live from Robin in West Virginia, and Robin wants to know your thoughts on feeding roasted grains. She says some literature suggests feeding smaller quantities due to a lack of fillers. Do either one of you have experience with roasted grains as a feed source? Uh, I don't know that I do. Do you, Hoyt? No, I've had some uh, racehorse clients in the past talk about roasted grains, but, but not personally have used them or recommended them. I, I guess I haven't seen enough literature on, on what the advantage is um, versus you know, what we have already. 
Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and move on to the next question, which is for Dr. Sheremy, and it came in from Grace in Florida. And Grace says that based on information she's gathered over time, she now feeds a 100% forage diet to her four horses, so no concentrate or grain. However, she's been hearing a lot of about benefits of plain oats recently, and she wants to know if oats present um, the same digestive issues that grains make produce in diets. Do you have any thoughts on, on feeding oats? Yeah, so, so um, as far as the forage diet, you know, it's important to, to remember, though, that any diet needs to com- be complete, and a forage diet is based, you know, what the horse is uh, designed to, to feed on, but we need to make sure that if it's a combination of pasture and, and hay, that it's going to contain all the appropriate micronutrients as well, because some ground is... Uh, has less uh, ability to impart appropriate nutrients in, into the grasses or haze where it's cut from. Uh, so I always recommend if you're feeding only forage to make sure that gets tested so we don't miss out on some of those micronutrients that would be made up for in a complete ration uh, as a, an addition in the feeding program. As far as oats go, um, they're considered somewhat of a safer cereal grain than say for instance corn or barley based on we look at the level of non-structural carbohydrates, so the the level of uh, simplicity's sake, the the simple sugars uh, within that um, uh, type of grain. Uh, Oats also have more fiber, particularly if they're whole oats, because the majority of that fiber is found uh, in the hull. Um, However, when oats are fed alone, because they do have some uh, mineral deficiencies, we can see some particular issues. Now, in horses that Uh, don't have high energy or work requirements, using oats in conjunction with a good quality forage is probably all the energy and nutrients that most of those horses uh, at that exercise level or work level um, need. Uh, As far as growing foals, uh, pregnant mares, lactating mares, horses in much higher work, uh, oats would probably not be enough, uh, uh, provide enough energy And again, some of those mineral mineral imbalances may become uh, an issue as well. Um, So it's just important that I always look at try to figure out what are the nutrient requirements of the individual horses that we're dealing with. And then based on that, put together a feeding program. And it may use um, oats. It may use concentrate feeds. It may use majority of of, uh, forage but that it's going to fit that horse's individual needs as far as nutrients, not be too much, not be too little. Okay. And we have a question for Dr. Blixlugger, and it's from Donna in Weatherford, Texas. And Donna has a gassy horse, and we got a lot of these questions, um, people concerned about their horses having gas, which can be a, a very serious problem. Um, and so she, she wants to know if you have any suggestions on products available to give on a daily basis for horses that do develop gas? I guess the way I would really try to approach um, gas is because uh, well, what's happening there is um, the whatever uh, feed is getting down, it's got to get down to the colon really to produce a, a substantial amount of gas. And, and always, but generally what's happening is that feed is being um, uh, digested rapidly, 
and the type of bacteria that are doing that, it, the population has probably shifted a little bit, and they are producing gas as a side product of that digestion. So it's all about the bugs. And I guess there are, I would imagine, um, if I were to search on the web, there are supplements and things like that we could look at. But I, I just uh, would wonder what the overall feeding program looks like, because what you're really looking at doing is trying to cut down as much as possible soluble carbohydrate in the feed. And the most obvious soluble carbohydrate will be uh, cracked corn, for instance. So going more for like the, the higher fat rations where they're getting energy out of the fat, not so much out of the carbohydrate, and then lots of decent quality uh, hay. Um, and then also be a little bit careful with the grass. I mean, if it's really rich spring grass, um, that can also be very readily digested, and so you have to be a little bit careful with that. But, it, but I think it really helps to imagine, again, we go back to this time frame of emptying the stomach fairly rapidly and getting it down the small intestine and then hitting the colon, you're really putting your feet almost directly into that uh, colon, fairly undigested at that point. And so the more the bugs can kind of go crazy over what you're feeding them, the more gas it's going to produce. So unfortunately because it's a bit repetitive, I know, but it's, it's this higher forage, low carbohydrate diet that's really the way to go. Okay. And so we have a question for Dr. Sheremy um, from Julie in Tucson, Arizona. And Julie lives in the desert like I do. And so she's in the same situation I am where she has horses that are on dry lots and don't have access to grazing all day. And she's been trying to feed them with a slow feeder type hay bag. Um, and she's wondering if those slow feeder hay bags or slow feeder troughs can help with digestion and ulcer issues in horses. We have... An additional question from uh, Melody in Alberta, Canada, who also wants to know if these slow feeders are good for easy keepers that otherwise uh, don't get much to eat um, and don't spend much time in front of their feet if it's not in a slow feeder. Uh, Dr. Sheremy, do you have any thoughts on slow feeders and hay nets? I do, and, and actually I recommend uh, the use of slow feeders, whether they be designed as bags, hay bags, uh, or as uh, feed troughs, and, and there's even some barrels that are designed for, for use in stalls. Um, but, but I think use of slow feeders when feeding hay is an excellent way to manage the forage uh, consumption in horses. Uh, there's a lot of benefits that come from feeding uh, that more simulates the natural um, feeding process and digestive process, as Dr. Blixlacher's already gone into, versus uh, things like free choice hay or meal feeding hay. Um, I think both of those things can, can be more beneficial than, than no or less forage. But when we feed horses free choice hay or meal feed them hay, I think we cause them to do a couple things. Uh, we give them a lot of access all at once to a, a, a forage that's very high dry matter. And I think these horses can put a lot more bulk into their stomach at one time than if they were feeding on a similar volume of grass, which is going to have a lot more moisture content. And the benefit, one of the benefits of grazing that horses are really designed to do 
is that throughout the, the grazing and chewing process, the horse creates a lot of saliva, upwards of somewhere around 15 gallons a day. And, and that saliva not only wets the food, but it provides a lot of bicarbonate that goes down into the stomach and is the main buffer for the acid that's continually pro being produced in the stomach. And so the way I use slow feeders in managing horses, particularly horses with ulcers, is that we don't have to give them free choice hay, which may cause them to, to eat more than we'd like them to so that they continuously eat so they can become obese. Um, but we can give them a smaller amount of hay, but, but force them to eat it over a longer period of time. So they are thus chewing, nibbling uh, over a, a longer period of time, creating more saliva. And in fact, some of the beneficial side effects that I've seen in, in cases are that owners report that their horses now don't eat all at once. They realize they can't eat all the hay at once, so they'll eat a little bit, kind of fill up their stomach partially, They'll walk around, move around, come back, and, and it almost simulates a grazing environment. And then the other thing that's been reported to me, particularly on horses that travel a lot, that stay on the road and show, is using these type of hay feeders. I've had lots of reports of owners tell me they've, that's made a big change in their horse's attitude. Again, they don't feel the horse in the stall next to them that they've never met before is going to get their food. It's going to be there. They can eat it slowly. They don't have to rush their food. And I think they learn that over time. And, and so for behavioral reasons, for uh, digestive reasons, I really think using slow feeders to manage forage consumption in horses is, is an advance that we've made in the last several years. Okay. And Dr. Sheremy, we have a question that's come in from our live audience. Louise is in Washington, and she wants to know about feeding horses when she's riding out in remote areas. Sometimes when we're out in the backcountry, we aren't near our feed. We can't always pack it with us. Is that going to affect our horse in a negative way if we ride all day without having um, giving them the chance to, to eat? So ideally, if you're riding in an area that has forage, I think it's important to allow them to graze if it's appropriate grazing conditions and, and forage for that. Um, and, and even packing uh, a flake of hay on a saddlebag uh, can be beneficial. It, it's not ideal to allow the horse's stomach to empty. So if we feed that horse, and whether we put it on a stall or get on its back and go for a six-hour ride and don't allow that horse to eat, that stomach is going to empty by that time, and then we predispose it to excess acidic development. Uh, so, so I think allowing horses to eat when they work, as long as it's not carbohydrates, more forages, I, I recommend that actually uh, if it's possible. I'm going to go back to the, the question, your second question regarding the slow feeders as being good for easy keepers. Mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent way. You know, we oftentimes try to use muzzles uh, for easy keepers if we're going to turn them out. And, and they seem to always get those muzzles off. It's difficult <laughs> to keep the muzzle on a horse yeah. that really wants to eat. But these slow feeders, particularly if we can put them in a dry lot and give them something to eat, a small amount, but over an extended period of time, again, I think that benefits them both um, physiologically and behaviorally. Okay. And our next question is about ulcers, and it's for Dr. Blixfogger. It came from Kay, who's in Oregon. And Kay wants to know why some horses seem to be more prone to ulcers than others when they're getting the same diet and living the same low-stress lifestyle. Dr. Blixsager, do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to this one. I really do. <laughs> I um, there are. Uh, I think I would uh, try to link that most closely back to their behaviour. So um, a horse that remains relatively calm and eats uh, more continuously. Um, and, you know, you can imagine a, a pony, for example. Um, They've always got their heads down, and they're just that much less likely uh, to develop ulcers. And, and part of the reason for that, for the way in which they eat, you know, if they don't just pick it a little bit and then they get really kind of hyped up either in a stall or a, a paddock or something like that and look around, but if they really spend some time properly ingesting the, and chewing the food, it makes a huge difference on what goes on in the stomach. Because within, uh, Dr. Sheremy already mentioned um, the, the tremendous benefit of the chewing and the saliva uh, containing bicarbonate in it. And then also mentioned the benefit of having food in the stomach. And then specifically what happens is if a horse can eat calmly and, um, and, and consistently, what happens when that food hits the stomach, presuming now we're talking largely about forage, is it will actually uh, form a mat of forage on the floating on the top, and then that will trap the more fluid content of the stomach below. And that lower part of the stomach is much more able to deal with fending off uh, acid injury. So um, the, the behavioral part of different horses, I think, is really important. And I, I'm wondering if you're perhaps referring to horses that are a little bit more hyper than others. Um, and then I would certainly have to admit there are some breeds of horses, perhaps because of how they're anatomically built, that are, that are more predisposed that we literally just don't understand why. Um, there are certainly uh, there's certainly a great deal that we have to figure out about that. Okay, um, Dr. Sharon, we have a question that came in from Edie in Virginia, and Edie has an Oldenburg gelding who was diagnosed diagnosed with ulcers. The only clinical sign they saw was that the horse was grumpy in training um, when the professional was riding, and he was fat, he was shiny, he seemed to be eating well, nothing else pointed to ulcers until he was scoped. Was there anything that she was missing looking at her horse or anything that she should have noticed? No, in some cases we see the symptoms, what we call symptoms or the clinical signs of ulcers to be very subtle. We classically think that the symptoms of ulcers would be weight loss or not gaining weight when we're giving them enough calories that they should be gaining weight or, or they're not eating well or even that they're colicking. Um, but oftentimes when ulcers first begin, uh, the only signs we might see is uh, a little bit change in the horse's attitude, a little reluctance to do the things they were more willing to do, and then some very mild changes in performance. And we often overlook those early on. Uh, because we think there's something else or we need to just work the horse through a training issue. Um, but for some horses, the only thing we may note is that uh, the horse is, is a little more grumpy on a consistent basis. And it's because horses individually react to gastric pain in a, a various myriad of ways, and, and not two of them are going to do it exactly the same. Um, I know to, back to the question before is, 
You know, when we look at horses and the incidence of ulcers in horses, in non-race horses that we do something with, that we, we have some kind of activity with them, it's going to be consistently around 60%. And in race horses, it's 90%. So it's never 100% even in the same environment. And that's just individual horse variability and, and, and how their body responds to the different levels of stress and things like that. But Gastric ulcers, I think, are often overlooked initially because those signs can be very subtle. And so I, I wouldn't feel bad that they missed something that was there that, or that they think might have been there um, before they noted the horse had ulcers and sometimes even when diagnosed to have severe ulcers on gastroscopy because some of these horses only show very mild signs. Okay. And Edie mentions the horse being grumpy, and we got several questions about horses that become cinchy, especially when they're in training. Is that a common clinical sign of, of ulcers when the horse doesn't um, maybe starts biting or snapping when, when you're girthing them up? That would be one thing that I would consider um, uh, horses, particularly when we put young horses into training. Um, I think we often will see that in horses that we diagnose with gastric ulcers if we ask the, uh, those specific questions. Um, and I don't necessarily know that the cinch itself, when we tighten it, creates some pain for them at the time. I think they come to understand what's going to happen. And, and there's uh, one study that shows when, exercise, when horses do exercise, the acid level does increase. And so if they have some ulceration, they know they're going to get ridden. I think they start kind of at that time when we're brushing them, Sometimes brushing in the flanks will elicit some similar responses. And, and so, you know, I think it's part of the horse realizing I'm fixing to go do something that's going to make my stomach hurt. Okay. And Dr. Blixhugger, we have a question that came from Cambria in Temecula, California. And she's asking whether or not a chi chiropractor can determine if a horse has ulcers from testing pressure points. Do you have any experience with that? Um. Yeah, I think with uh, some, we um, have chiropractors come. Um, I have a, a, a small farm with my wife um, near the vet school here, and uh, we have chiropractors come, and uh, some people are doing acupuncture. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of training that they go through to try to pick up um, uh, specific points that, that then lead more from an Eastern medicine um, point of view to pinpointing where um, pain might be coming from. I can't categorically say that there, I mean, there has not been a study that says, well, um, chiropractors in this blinded study um, were reproducibly able to pick up that a horse had an ulcer. Um, so I, I think it's the sort of thing where it's going to be very much um, to do with the relationship that you, the professional relationship you would have with the chiropractor, you know, how your experience with them, the kind of information they're giving you and how useful that's been to you over the time you've worked with them. I think um, they, there's a tendency um, perhaps with some alternative um, therapies and manipulations to take a little bit more of a leap and to say, okay, well, then this here is just absolutely clear-cut going to be an ulcer because um, there's just nothing that's, that's really quite that black and white, and I don't think most chiropractors are doing that. 
one thing then I would say is I would try to put the whole picture together. If a chiropractor comes out and is trying to do some, some work with your horse and they're concerned about some, some pain issues, I would try to think a little bit about the management of the horse, the prior, you know, what, what you've dealt with in the past with the horse because really what it's leading up to is whether you're either going to invest in having the horse endoscope to see if there truly is an ulcer or whether you're going to invest in, in treatment. Um, certainly we would always prefer that we could actually see it. But um, I, 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 don't, I just don't think it's a black and white point. And that kind of leads into our next question for Dr. Sheremy, and it's from Joan in Connecticut. And Joan wants to know if you would ever start a horse on meds for a suspected gastric ulcer based on clinical signs rather than scoping the horse or without scoping the horse. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Sheremy? Sometimes we actually do do that. And, and I have clients that ask about that. And when I do lots of um, uh, horse owner meetings, you know, that's always one of the questions, especially if we go to a practice that doesn't have uh, the endoscopy equipment and there's not one within, a, you know, a few hour drive. You know, what, what are they supposed to do? And, and what I remind people is that if you've ever been diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux disease or chronic reflux in people, it's actually a very similar syndrome. The same tissue is, is affected in the people. It's in the esophagus. In horses, the same tissue is in the top part of the stomach. Um, but uh, if the horse has specific symptoms that we might see a very quick change in and a very dramatic change, then we can use that. As most people that get diagnosed with reflux disease don't ever have endoscopy of their esophagus, they tell the doctor, these are my symptoms, and the doctor says, try this medication for two weeks and tell me how you feel, because the medication will only do one thing. It changes the acid level in the stomach, and if there's less acid, less potential for discomfort. And so we can use that mm -hmm. in horses in those cases um, if the symptom is something that we're going to be able to see a change in. So if all of a sudden the horse quits eating his grain meal or becomes very resistant on a continual basis to some work, um, then we can try therapy for a few days up to a week. And if we see some change, it can be suggestive that the horse might have ulcers. In those cases, I always recommend, if possible, to go ahead and get gastroscopy gastroscopy done because then we'll be able to tell how severe the ulcers are and that will help direct our treatment um, and, and confirm it you know because we don't want to misdiagnose something and then kind of be chasing the wrong thing if we think it's ulcers now we're going to treat them and it really isn't ulcers but it, and often uh, times it can give us an idea that the stomach is the problem by trying a treatment period for a short period of time. Okay. Now our next question is from Jennifer in Lincoln, Nebraska, and this is for Dr. Blixsager. Jennifer wants to know if ulcers can heal on their own without treatment or if supplementation for year-round management is more effective. Do you have some recommendations for Jennifer? Um, yeah, I mean, they, they, they can heal. They actually heal pretty rapidly uh, by their, their themselves on some occasions, but I... The key to the whole uh, issue is um, trying to get the uh, acidity of the stomach um, reduced as much as possible. 
So I'm just trying to read the question here, and um, it'd be better to supplement year round. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that supplement year round with either some sort of antacid or other supplement that's supposed to aid in healing. I guess um, I'd more go with the uh, trying to feed them uh, differently um, so that they do have um, forage in their stomachs to try to buffer the acid would be the, the, the most natural way of doing it. And one of the greatest uh, forages for doing this is actually alfalfa. Um, so, yes, yeah, certainly they can heal on their own, but, I, but a change in management um, will be the, the thing that you would want to do alongside that. And, um, and, and, and specifically mm -hmm. what I mean by change is feed them more forage more consistently. And I have a question here um, from Lydia in Wisconsin and then also from Tracy in Ontario, Canada. And both of them are asking about the relationship between cribbing and ulcers. Are, is cribbing or wind sucking a uh, result of ulcers or is it causing ulcers? Or is there any relationship? Dr. Blixlogger, is that something that you could address for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, the first thing, uh, so cribbing is sort of an interesting topic, and there's been a couple of new findings on this. I mean, first of all, cribbing, um, by and large, is, uh, you know, as we all know, is, is caused by boredom in horses. It's called stereotypical behavior, meaning it goes through this series of uh, maneuvers to take their mind off the boredom of, of the day and then they almost get kind of hooked on it to the extent that they'll do it out in the field. Um, so the most important thing to know about cribbing, uh, aside from what it does to the teeth and uh, and your stalls, is um, they... And your they, fences. <laughs> the and your fences, that's right, and uh, the few people that are too close to them. Um, the uh, most important thing to know about cribbing is that they pull air back into the esophagus. And now we're talking about the upper part near the throat. And then they belch it back out again. So it doesn't ever get back down into the stomach. And that's, that's sort of an unusual, because when you think of wind sucking, you always think, okay, that's going to make it down into the stomach. The, only, uh, the sort of um, way that one might relate that to ulcers is that the longer they're cribbing, the less they're eating, and maybe the stomach's just sort of lying there empty. And, and, and the thing about the equine stomach, and why we, I keep sort of harping on this, well, you know, get some reasonable forage in there, is because it will produce acid all day, every day, at a consistent rate. They don't produce it because there's a meal coming, um, necessarily. They just produce it at a constant rate. So if they're, if they're cribbing, they're still producing acid. They would, however, be swallowing a little bit of saliva. So the association is kind of loose. And the strongest association that's recently been found between cribbing and colic is that some horses uh, develop um, a specific kind of intestinal obstruction where the small intestine gets caught in a little hole that's inside the horse called an epiploic foramen. And they think that happens because as they crib, the diaphragm moves back and forth, and so does the bowel move back and forth, and occasionally it can get caught in the mm -hmm. wrong place. Okay. 
And I just want to let everyone know that we only have about 10 minutes left. Um, we're going to hit a few more of these ulcer questions and then move into some of our colic-specific questions and diarrhea questions before we, we wrap up. Um, our next question is going to be for Dr. Sheremy, and it's from Betsy in Seebeck, Washington. And she has a 12-year-old mare who she believes has ulcers, but she hasn't mm -hmm. had the vet checker. She wants to know, um, she gives the horse uh, ultra strength Tums twice a day, and she wants to know if this is something that will help her horse, and if so, uh, what is the correct dosage on that? Dr. Sheremy, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Well, um, Antacids are used somewhat in people uh, for management of hyperacidity and, and heartburn, uh, but they're, they're more useful, as Dr. Blixlager mentioned, in the horse's stomach, they produce acid continuously. And in people, we only produce, or the majority of the acid that's produced is associated with that meal. And so we could manage heartburn and, and excess acid around the meal by taking antacids. Unfortunately, in the horse, the studies that have looked at that using antacids just don't show adequate response even when fed every couple of hours to try to manage the, the acid level, uh, which is what it would take since the buffering effect is only going to happen with the acid that's present at the time it's administered. And then within a couple of hours, since a lot of new acid has mm -hmm. been produced, that the Tums or, or any antacid will have no residual effect. Um, I think they can have some benefit, and I talk about using uh, them in the whole scheme of management and then using some pharmaceuticals, definitely the appropriate pharmaceuticals for treatment. Um, but in my experience, and, and I think what the literature bears out, is that antacids by themselves in horses don't really provide enough efficacy for therapy, for treating the ulcers, and even in for prevention uh, with the number of times during a day you'd have to give it just because they have such a short half-life or, or effect uh, on, the, on the acid level. Okay, thank you. Our next question is for Dr. Blixlogger, and it's from Kelly in Arley, Montana. And Kelly wants to know if compounded omeprazole formulations are effective in treating ulcers. Dr. Blixlogger, can you talk about compounded formulations? Yeah, um, the, big, um, the, the main thing I would say about it is if you truly knew you were getting um, a high-quality, well-formulated neprazole, it, it's going to work. The trouble is you, you, just don't end, you, you can't really be that confident about that. So although these are uh, less expensive, and I'm sure there are some that are probably compounded quite well, but in general, you're just really in the dark as to whether these have been compounded correctly so they make it down mm -hmm. into the stomach intact in the right concentration to do the job. And that's where really and veterinarians don't just say this because they want to sell you a product. They, they, to really get it done correctly, you need to get the drug there in its appropriate form. Okay, thank you. Um, we're going to move on to some colic questions now. Um, and this first one is for Dr. Sheremy from Janet in Colorado. She's in Fort Collins. And she wants to know, Dr. Sheremy, if your favorite personal horse was prone to colic, how would you manage his feed and exercise to give him the be best chance of living colic-free? 
I think that's well, a great question. It is, and I, I wish I had the answer. I mean, that that's actually why I went to veterinary school with my, my own horse, uh, colic, to, was to, to figure out how to prevent colic in horses. And, and mm -hmm. um, uh, unfortunately, because of the design of their gastrointestinal tract and the things that we want to do with them, we create risk that lead to the development of colic. We do know, though, there are certain things that are highly associated with horses that colic, or at least colic incidents, and so trying to avoid those things are going to be, we would suspect, to be more beneficial. So things that would help would be, we you know, increasing pasture time. The more time a horse is kept in a stall, the incidence of colic can go up. Um, the pasture time has a couple effects. One, it allows the horse to move, and we know that when horses walk and move around, we stimulate gastric and intestinal motility. We use that actually after surgery to help the, the intestines start moving again and working right. Um, so in a natural setting, that's one of the things that really help keep that gastrointestinal system in, in as much uh, functioning as normal as possible. We also know that increased concentrate feedings are associated with increased incidence of colic. So the more we can feed horses an adequate amount of energy using forage, Again, keeping a consistent movement of good feedstuff through the system as it was designed is going to be less likely to produce excess gas and uh, the things then that cause intestinal pain and potentially then um, accidents in the intestine where that might require surgery. The other things we, we look at is water intake, making sure throughout the year, particularly in times where we see the weather start to change to get cold, we think horses may decrease their water consumption and I think most equine veterinarians will see an increase in impaction colics during the fall of the year, and we think that's potentially one of the things that might might be associated with it. And then reducing stress. Again, some of the things that Dr. Blixlager has hit on, allowing those horses to kind of be as, as, as uh, horse-like as possible um, and, and feed in that manner and be less stressed when feeding allows that gastrointestinal system to function more normally. And I wish I could say give this supplement or do this particular thing or don't do that thing. But even in the best well-managed situations, we do run a course, you know, across horses that will colic. Um, but doing these things that I mentioned are going to help to decrease the, the risk of that colic. We have a question that's come in from our live audience, and it's from Judy in Pennsylvania. And Dr. Blixlager, I'm going to give this one to you. She wants to know if an erratic feeding schedule can harm horses and cause ulcers. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, it, yes, it can. Again, just related to this issue of um, how uh, how full the stomach is on a on a regular basis. So. So, in other words, if you went back to the sort of almost more perfect situation, which I recognize is not always possible, you would have this forage coming in at a fairly consistent rate. It's going to kind of halfway fill the stomach. It's going to have a mat of this floating forage sitting on the top, holding the acid content down below it. And so then when you erratically feed them, there's going to be periods of time where it's just uh, higher, um, but the 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 stomach contents are more fluidy in nature. And when they get that way, literally just kind of sluice up toward the top. And that's where you're going to see most of the ulcers. Not all of them, but, but most of them. When it, because the upper, uh, approximately 50% of the stomach, 
not particularly good at dealing with acid. And so that's how uh, erratic feeding would, could be problematic in that way. It sort of goes along with, you know, having the slow feeder so that they can always have hay there, depending on, the, you know, the weight and other concerns of the horse, having forage in front of them as much as you can when they're on the trailer, um, when you're out at the showgrounds, just tie them to the side of the trailer, let them do a little grazing, this sort of thing. Okay. Try to minimize that. And we are just about at time. I have two questions that I want to sneak in here, if you guys will hang on with me for a few extra minutes tonight. Um, the next question is for Dr. Sheremy, and it's from Hillary in Woodside, California. And Hillary has had a horse who's had two colic surgeries um, already, and she he colics three to four times a year. She wants to know what under what circumstances would you consider a third colic surgery for this horse? Dr. Sheremy, how do you make that tough decision? So that's something that I have run into in, in clinical practice, and um, there tends to be some horses, particularly with uh, what her question related to dorsal displacement of the colon. Uh, when when I did, we do one, we don't think they're going to happen again. They do have a slightly more higher risk. Uh, when you do it a second time, we always thought if you cut them twice, you cut them thrice. Um, you know, that's not 100%. But at that point, I would consider if the horse colicked in a nature that suggested we needed to do an additional exploratory surgery, two decisions need to be made. One, does she want to go through that again with the horse? Is it worth it? If, if there's not compromised bowel, the horse has a, a really good chance to, uh, to come back, just like it has the last two times. And, and when she considers that and the expense, if she wants to go forward, then I would say, you know, the horse still has an excellent chance. The second, the, the second part, though, would be once we got in and looked and saw what the problem was, if it, in fact, was a, a colon issue, one idea might be to uh, decide to do something to prevent that from happening again. Instead of just putting everything back where it goes and recovering the horse and getting them through the post-op time would be to do one of two procedures. And then that depends what the horse's activity level is as to what we might choose. And, and those two things might be to do what we call a colopexy, where we tack the colon down so it can't move out of place, not without potential complications. And the other thing it would be to actually remove most of the colon. And in horses that aren't sick, if there's not compromise, uh, and so the anesthetic procedure is, is hopefully not too hard on these horses. Those horses have a pretty good chance, I think, uh, of responding, and that would at least eliminate the potential for a displaced colon again. Now, they have their um, uh, potential problems, and so if it was a colon surgery the first time, doing these two procedures would have greater complication potentials than just putting the colon back. But if you cut the horse a third time and didn't fix it, I think you're waiting to, for it to happen again. And, and Dr. Blixliger, as a surgeon, might have some additional thoughts or comments as well. I would entirely agree with that. I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing to stop you doing that third surgery except to say that you just have to look at the body wall and how that's doing, and you might 
even put the incision in a different place. But it sounds, uh, if you had this exact same thing again, it would, the bowel should be healthy. And yeah, for a performance horse, you'd be looking more at trying to uh, take the colon out. Uh, if it were, um, uh, you know, in broodmares we do this, or in horses that are uh, retired, then you can just tack the colon to the body wall. Okay. Um, so we are past the end of our of our discussion, but I want to slip in one question about diarrhea because, Dr. Blixlogger, we got so many questions about mystery diarrhea cases, and I know I've run into this personally with my own horses too. Um, I'm going to take a question from Linnea in, in Walnut, Illinois. And Linnea asks, what suggestions do you have for treating a horse with diarrhea that's chronic but doesn't seem to have any other problems and her vet hasn't been able to, to figure out what's going on. Do you have any suggestions? And I know there's lots of horse owners out here who've deal, dealt with this. Yeah, it's, uh, I have to admit this is, I mean, it's terribly frustrating for the owner and it's just about as frustrating for the veterinarian. We, um, you know, for chronic diarrhea, we the diagnosis rate is is really quite low, and so it looks like you've already um, uh, done some uh, fecal cultures, and um, we usually try to culture for Salmonella because that's one of the organisms that we know that's not supposed to be there and can cause problems. There are just so many other organisms in there that we haven't really figured out what they do yet. And then you're already feeding a, a probiotic. Um, there are there are some uh, specific probiotics on the market that um, uh, have specifically gone after um, chronic diarrhea. And um, you know, without naming the product, we, I was actually involved in a study where we used it was actually a combination pre and probiotic for treatment. And um, we had a good bit of success with it, and this is actually a, a pretty large um, uh, trial done with multiple different veterinarians in practice. Well, I guess what I would really then say is what you're dealing with is that once the diarrhea starts, it becomes this vicious cycle. So you have the, uh, the organisms or the bugs that are in the colon there are out of whack, basically. And you're trying to restore them, we're, and we're talking about millions of organisms and trying to give uh, just a relatively few back in, in terms of a probiotic. But literally what you are faced with is trying to restore that back to normal. And we've, we've harped a lot on the feeding in order to try to get that back to normal, and that's going to be just all kinds of conversation about forage, so we've done that. Um, and then the probiotic, it may even be uh, really worthwhile talking to your veterinarian about, let's just really check out these probiotics and see what evidence the ones that you're using have for treatment of this kind of condition here. There are a couple of other diagnostic procedures that can be done. The only, I mean, the, um, uh, you can ultrasound the gut just to see if it's actually physically inflamed or thickened. Um, and you can also do a biopsy via the rectum to see if you see any abnormal or inflammatory cells because it would be sure nice to know if there's some underlying inflammatory condition, a lot like um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease in people that you're dealing with. But if you're not dealing with that, you could effectively rule those out. 
um, you know, honestly, you're going after the right thing. It may be a matter of more closely checking out the probiotics that you're using. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Blixlogger. And, and I'm going to have to call it there. And we're, we're about 10 minutes over, but I, I appreciate you guys sticking around for a little bit extra to hit a, a few more questions. I want to thank everyone for listening live. Thank you for submitting your questions. They were really great questions on, on a big topic. I want to thank Muriel for sponsoring this event. This is brought to you free uh, by Muriel. I want to thank you, Dr. Blixauger and Dr. Sheremy. Great answers on, on these tough questions. My pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Uh, if you're listening and you want to listen again, this will be archived uh, likely tomorrow on the website. If you have more questions or your questions didn't get answered, get on thehorse.com, do a search. Uh, we have thousands of articles, videos, and fact sheets that can help you out and hopefully help answer some of your questions. So thank you again, everyone. Thank you to the doctors, and have a wonderful evening. <laughs>